In our prayer, and we'll be in Leviticus 23. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at the, the feasts that you've given your people and, and look at the meanings of them and, and how they're performed. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, Leviticus chapter 23. This is the one and only place in the scriptures where all the, all the feasts are listed in the same place. Uh, Exodus has them, but it kind of spreads them out. And so we're going to be looking at this here. Uh, starting at verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim on the holy, to be holy convocations, even these are my feast. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath, is the Sabbath day of rest, a holy convocation, and you shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwelling. These are the feast of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month, that evening, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days ye must eat unleavened bread. In the first day ye shall have a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. But ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In, a in the seventh day is a holy convocation, and ye shall do no servile work therein. So we'll stop there at the Passover. Uh, so starts out, he says, first to them concerning the feast, they shall be a holy convocation. And this, convo this word convocation means that they call the people together. It's a sacred assembly. It's a reading. It's going to be a time... One of the things they do on the Sabbath day is read the scriptures. Uh, very much like we do in our services where we read the scriptures and we teach on the scriptures. And so it says the, the, holy, the, the, holy, the feast will be holy convocations, a gathering together of the people. Then he goes into six days shall work be done, and on the seventh it is a Sabbath of rest. A holy convocation you shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. And this is God's commandment, and it's to the Jews, and in other places we've read, it says that the Sabbath day is a sign between God and the Jews. Every seventh day they are to rest and do no work. And this has been done by the Jews since Moses gave them their command. To the present day, they take and rest every Saturday. And... During, during various periods of their, their, of, their, of their history, they have been called lazy people because they needed to take a vacation every, once a week. They took a one-day vacation. And uh, you know, we kind of look at it now in our day. We're used to two-day you know, weekends with two days off, but we're starting to lose that idea in our, in our economy. But for the longest time in this world, you worked all seven days of the week. And the Jews were an exception to that rule by taking a day off every week. And God blessed them, and they were fulfilling what they told him. And it says that on the seventh day you will do no work. It is a Sabbath of rest. Now, Sabbath literally means rest, okay, or to put to an end or cessation. Get easy for me to say. <laughs> uh, which means the end to end something. So the Sabbath was the end of the week. It represented, of course, when God rested on the seventh day. And we, know, we all know that God was so tired he had to rest on the seventh day, right? <laughs> no, he wasn't tired. It was, 
It was an example to us that we needed to rest one time, in, one, one day in every seven. And this is what we want to look at, is that God says that it is going to be a day of rest. And you're to do no work. And when you look at the laws in, in, regarding the Sabbath, they weren't to light fires, they weren't to cook, they weren't to do anything. They were literally not to work on the Sabbath day. Uh, now, they've got a whole bunch of rules on what is work and what is not work and, and all kinds of things that they've tried to define exactly what work is and how far can you walk without considering it work. And, um, well, back in those days, they had to walk. Well, you had to walk everywhere. So, and they, they had what they called a Sabbath day's walk, which was like about two miles, if I recall correctly. It was a very short distance. So, or two or five miles. It was not a very far distance. And so you, you, if you were going to go to the synagogue and you were supposed to on the Sabbath, you had to make sure that you were within a Sabbath day's walk of the synagogue, whether you lived that close or camped that close or whatever, you had to be close to the synagogue or you went there before sunset and you stayed there until sunset the next day. So, but they really had this idea and this is what God has said this is the sign between himself and the Jews that they would be take a day off every seven days then he goes in these are the fast of the Lord even holy convocations that you shall be claim in their seasons or their appointed times and the 14th day of the first month at evening is the Lord's Passover okay so this is the first one he's talking about and we hopefully all remember Passover from when we were studying it in Exodus. It goes all the way back to the 10th plague in Egypt. The firstborn children, uh, firstborn of everything, not just children, was killed in Egypt. Unless they had offered the Passover lamb and marked their doors with the, with the sign of the cross, with the blood on the sides and the top and the bottom. And were marked their house and then nobody would die in that house. And so that was the Passover. And we all know that. It doesn't talk a lot about the practices of each of these. So we're just going to go through them fairly quick. On the 15th day of the same month is the feast of the unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days must you eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a holy congregation and do no servile work therein. But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days in the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Okay, so here's what you've got. You've got the Passover, which is going to be considered a Sabbath day. Right after, the day after the Sabbath, you start unleavened bread. Okay, and unleavened bread is, is a seven-day period. And the first day of unleavened bread is a sabbath day as well so you've got two sabbath days right in a row when when passover comes along you got passover and unleavened bread and then you've got six and then seven days later you're going to have another sabbath and that doesn't count the saturday sabbath that will fall someplace in in that seven days so during during a nine day period of time you're going to have at least four sabbaths in nine days okay I'm hoping that's not confusing everybody okay because we've got to remember Sabbath means rest we're put an end to so that's four days rest out of the 
So out of those nine days, you're going to have four days that you rest because they're considered Sabbath days. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are Saturdays because only one, you know, one or two will be Sabbath days in that, in that time period. This is one of the things that when, when uh, the early church and the, when it became the Roman Catholic Church and they started coming up with Good Friday, the reason they came up with Good Friday is because it said that he was in the ground and they couldn't go take care of the body because the next day was the Sabbath. Okay, so he died on Passover. First fruits would have been a Sabbath, and then who knows, you know, what when the Sabbath actually followed, and then he raised up from the dead on the, one of the other feasts we're going to look at called first fruits. So. All of this has been fulfilled. These, these first four feasts that we're talking about have been fulfilled by Jesus on his first coming. All right? He was our Passover lamb. He took the penalty for the sin and protected those who are under the blood from death. And then he goes into this unleavened bread. Prepare for, for Passover. They sweep all the, the leaven out of their house or yeast or any any leavening agent, but yeast is the primary one. And all of the leavening agents are removed out of their house. Uh, all the baking sodas and powders and all that stuff that we have in our house would be removed. Anything you'd use on a cake or a, or a, or a pie to raise. They would just like throw it away? They would just like get it out of the house? Technically, they were to throw it away. <laughs> they were to throw it away and get rid of it. I think sometimes they'd give them to neighbors to hold on to them nowadays so they don't waste money, but it's to be, and they were sweep out their houses, and uh, one, of the, one of the pastors was talking about, he went to Israel around Passover time, and it took the, took the whole till, something like eight days to get ready for Passover and unleavened bread, to remove all the yeast. And what they will do is literally clean everything. They'll sweep everything in the kitchens and all the cabinets, and. They get rid of uh, all the leavening agents. Mm -hmm. Now, does anybody remember what leaven represents? Sin. Sin. So the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is a feast celebrating the removal of sin. Okay? Does that make sense? Passover, the deliverance of, of the people, and unleavened bread, the uh, removal of sin. What's servitude? Servitude is uh, removing, the, removing the, uh, leaven bread. Doing any kind of work. Like removing the leaven bread. No, any kind of work. Oh, any work. Okay. During this period for a week, you wouldn't go to, you know, during the Sabbath, you would not go to work. You would not, wow. you would not go out on the farm. You would not, you know, you literally were to do no work. Wow. Now, if you remember when, when they were, even during this period of time, back in Exodus, when they were, when they first started getting manna, they were to go out and get manna every day for their food. And if you kept it overnight, it turned into mold and, mold and maggots would grow in it. Yeah. On the sixth day of the week, you had to take twice as much manna because manna was not going to be provided on the day you were not supposed to work, Sabbath. And God would protect the two-day supply if it was on Sabbath. And... If you remember the stories of people who took two days work because they didn't want to have to do two days, you know, work two days in a row, and, and it stunk, and then those people who had it stink, you know, stink after they on two days didn't go get two day supply on Sabbath, and they were hungry, and God was angry, angry with people for not following their instructions. Uh, but in this case, we've got this event of the 
unleavened bread. And if you remember, they were to put out all the leaven and everything out of their homes on Passover, and then they were going to be... And this is the, the actual thing this commemorates in history for them is the fact that when they were kicked out of I Egypt, they ate unleavened cakes because they didn't have any leaven. Uh, and if anybody's familiar with the way they used to make bread back then, they would use starter dough to, to throw into the next batch, and it would, start, it would be the way they passed their leaven into the next, next batch of bread. Because they would start with bread that was already leavened, and then it would, you know, uh, give the yeast into the leaven into the bread. Used to be done all the time until recently. Yeah. They had the guys in the pioneer days called sourdoughs. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. why they would do the sourdoughs. You know, the old plant. Well, the sourdough was a certain certain type, but you you had that you had they you had the starters. Kept the leaven going. Yeah. Yeah. You had to start. You had the starters. Yeah, I was one of my that guy's an old sourdough. So, and this was a time that they were to make an offering by fire or a burnt offering. And and what's the burnt offering mean for when we talked about it? Dedication. Okay, it's our dedication. It's a symbol of our dedication that I'm totally totally consumed in service to God. And then they would do this for seven days. Verse 9, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speaking to the children of Israel, and saying to them, When ye have come into the land which I give you, which I give unto you, you shall reap the harvest thereof, and then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest into the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, to be accepted of you on, on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And ye shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf a he lamb without blemish of the herd for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof shall be two tenths deal of fine flour mingled with oil and, and an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor. And a drink offering thereof shall be, be of wine and a fourth part of a hen. And ye shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that you have brought an offering unto your God. And it shall be a statute for you throughout all your generations and all your dwellings. So now we get to the first fruits. This one is going to start when they enter the promised land. Before that, they didn't practice it. The first fruit offering and, and sacrifice is the first Sunday after Passover. All right? And they said the first day, okay? The first Sunday after Passover is first fruits. Okay, so here we have a picture of Jesus. Jesus dies on Passover as our Passover lamb to, forget, to, to keep away sin and death. He is buried in the ground to remove the penalty for sin because it's removed. And then on first fruits, which would be Sunday, he is resurrected to be the first, first fruit of resurrection. Okay? You're, you're following all that? <laughs> we are not necessarily expected as, as Gentiles to follow these feasts, but we really want to know what they're all about and how, they how they've been fulfilled. And the first four feasts that we're talking about are called spring feasts. They're, they happen in the spring. Okay? All four of them. 
the their seventh month is roughly our March or April uh, because they they're float around because they use 28 day months where we use 30 and 31 day months. So they theirs float around a little bit and every couple of years they add an extra month at the end of it to bring them back into line. Passover? Yeah. The Jesus's death and protection from sin and death. Yeah. Unleavened bread, the removal of sin, and then first fruit, which is the new life, the beginning of new life. The first, the first, first resurrection. Sunday after Passover, right? And first fruit was always the Sunday after Passover, which means if Passover was on a Sunday, it'd be a full week before you would have first fruit. Mm -hmm. If it was on, you know, a Saturday, then the next day would be first fruit. Uh, so, but we go back to when I was starting to say, you know, the Roman Catholic Church didn't understand Sabbath days were part of the feasts as well. So that's why Good Friday came along. They said, well, if Jesus died the day before Sabbath, it had to be a Friday. And then we've seen people do all this convoluted jumping around to, to figure out how to make Jesus be dead for three days. Okay. Uh, but if you understand this the way it's written, he died on a Wednesday or Thursday, and the next day would have been... Would have been uh, Un, the start of unleavened bread, unleavened the feast of unleavened bread, and which would have been a Sabbath day. <laughs> All right. So again, we understand scripture. We understand these problems that you don't need these convoluted ways to say, okay, he died Friday, Saturday, Sunday. <laughs> you know, no, he died at, you know right at right at sunset on Friday. So that really claiming that he was dead for one hour on on Friday doesn't match for three days. You know, so. And he was resurrected sometime on s Sunday morning, probably at sunset on Saturday night. So we got to be, be able to push it back to Thursday or Wednesday or Thursday for him to have died. Uh, so it's pretty easy when we understand scripture to say we can understand how he can die the day before, sa before a Sabbath. And Nick said it was a high Sabbath, which definitely means that it's a, one of the feast days. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Covering a lot of different information. <laughs> so on the on the on the first fruits offering, they were to come up. They were to wave the she the living sheaves. They were to be taken out of the harvest and wave them before the Lord. A uh, bundle of wheat, oh, okay. a bundle of grain. And they were to do that. They were to give a burnt offering. They were to give a meat offering. And remember, that is a meal offering. It's mostly flour. And remember, it's the fine flour that's had the husk removed and the, and the outside of the, the, the grain has been removed and, and been powdered down really fine. We would almost say like a talc, talcum powder. It would be so fine. Not really talcum powder, so but that. the meat offering. The meat offering. And they, they put frankincense on that. And then they would bring, they would give oil and they would pour out liquid. And it was a... And who got the food on the meal, the meal offering? The priest. The priest did, yes. The priest would get that, that meal. Then they were said, You shall neither eat bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that you have brought the offering to your God. It shall be a statute throughout all your generations in all your dwellings. 
So they were not to eat any of these grains between Passover and first fruit. So they were probably pretty happy when Passover fell on a, you know, on a Friday or Saturday because <laughs> it wasn't a long wait. Um, but because the grains represented the fruit and, and the harvest, okay, the, the, the new life picture. And uh, so we, we see this, we see these first, these first feasts. And, these, and then this last feast we're going to look at, uh, the spring feasts. And you shall count unto yourself, verse 15, from the morrow after the Sabbath, that's the day that you've done your, your first fruits, the day after it. And you shall count uh, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wee wave offering. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Then on, unto the morrow of the seventh Sabbath shall you number 50 days. And you shall offer a new meat offering or meal offering unto the Lord. So we're out 50 days. And this festival is called, at least in the Greek in the Greek language, Pentecost. Well, it lasted over 50 days. Huh? That festival lasted over No, it starts 50 days after oh, first fruits. Okay? You have first fruit festival, and then 50 days later you have Pentecost. It always changes every year, different date. Well, the... It's not always on the same. Yeah, it would always be a different date because your, your Passover starts these holidays. You know, Passover starts these holidays. The holidays were, will be that will start on the fort on the fourteenth month of the first, the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. Starts Passover. Unleavened bread starts right after that, and then first fruit is is the first Sunday after that, and then Pentecost will be fifty days late after that. All right. So everything's keyed off of Passover. And so we look, at, we look at Pentecost here, and it says, and what happened on Pentecost as far as we as Christians are concerned? Christ died. Holy Spirit. Huh? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit came down upon the, upon the disciples, and technically the church started on Pentecost. Before that, there was no such thing as the church, technically. All right. So, verse 17, you shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves and two tenth deal, of two tenth deals, and, you shall, and they shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And you shall offer them with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock, and two rams. And they shall be for burnt offering unto the Lord, and their meat offering, and their drink offering for an evening made. For an offering made by fire, a sweet odor unto the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering, and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offering. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs, and they shall be holy unto the Lord for the priests. And ye shall proclaim that selfsame day it shall be a holy convocation unto you. You shall do new. Do no servile work therein, shall be, and it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout the generations. So Pentecost was a big celebration day. Okay? Uh, and it was going to be a big, big thing. They're going to wave, they're going to bake loaves. And this time the loaves have leaven in them, which is kind of an interesting. Leaven is yeast. Is yeast, represents yeah, sin. Yeast, not leaven. Yeah, represents sin. 
And because remember, it is the start of the church where Jesus is taking people to start something. So this is a representation of that. They're, they're lifting up baked loaves of bread. And we would, we would say they were just standard loaves of bread as far as we're concerned, made out of really fine flour, which is very much like the flour we use today in our loaves of bread. Uh, if you were eating bread, even 75 to 100 years ago, bread was a very heavy <laughs> product. Even what we call whole wheat bread, which we think is a pretty heavy bread, would be considered light to what they were used to making bread out of because they took the, they took the, 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 the wheat, they ground it up, and it still had the, the husks and part of the, the, the wheat berry and all of that other stuff, and it was a very heavy flour that they used. This flour would be one like we use, probably not bleached, but it would have been ground and removed and sifted and ground and sifted so that there's nothing hard in it. And that represents the crushing of people into one, you know, one group to be made into a loaf. And this is what we are as a church. We're made into one. And this is what that bread represents. And he says, you shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, one young bullock and two rams. That's a lot of, a lot of animals being killed I know. Uh, for, this, uh, for this festival. There's 18. A lot of blood. A lot of blood. Uh, but, you know, we're looking at seven lambs, one bullock, and two rams. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at ten animals being killed for this celebration. And these are burnt offering. This is for a burnt offering, which means it is wholly consumed. All right? So these ten animals are going to be consumed. And then it says, with their meat offering and their drink and their offering by fire. And then it says in verse 19, And you shall offer a sacrifice of a kid of the goats for a sin offering, and two lambs of one year, so you sacrifice for a peace offering. And who remembers anything about the peace offering? That's the offering where you get a part of it back, and the priests get part of it, and God gets part of it. It's picnic with God, picnic with God as that one pastor calls it. You know, it's, it's that opportunity, and there's two lambs. So that's, that's, Thanksgiving. that's for the peace offering. Peace offering and Thanksgiving offering. Yeah, Thanksgiving was different different, but they each still shared it all. Well, the peace offering is where they're going to share. I see. So, and a peace offering had, if it's for a vow, you had one day to eat the meat, and if it wasn't for, if it was a free will offering, you had two days to eat the, eat the meat. So you had to eat it all in one day. Okay? Yeah. Well, in this case, it's, it's, it's required, so you're going to have to eat it all in that one day. So you better, so you probably planned, you probably planned to have a large family gathering. If you're going to eat two lambs, you're going to have a large family gather, gathering. And the priests are going to have a feast too because they're, they're going to have all these people offering the peace offerings. So it's weird how they had where there's some day they have to eat all the meat and then there's other days where if you don't eat the rest, you have to get rid of it. You know, like well, that's what this way too. If you, don't eat it, if you don't eat it all in this one day, it's got to be burnt. So, Just like the Passover lamb had to be, nothing was to be left over until the daybreak. It was all to be consumed. If it didn't get consumed, it was to be burnt. Which right would be happy with me. I like lamb, so it wouldn't have bothered me to have a feast on lamb. But right off the bat, the first thing is uh, just giving, offering seven lambs and uh, bread and one ram and a and a, and a cow and, and rams. And, yeah. Geez. All right. And the priest, verse 20, and the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits of wave offering before the Lord. 
With the two lambs they shall be holy unto the Lord for the priest, and ye shall proclaim in that selfsame day that it may be a holy convocation unto you. You shall do no servile work therein, and it shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings. So they were to take these lambs and wave them before the God with the, with the grain. And, you know, and it's, a very, it's a very joyful time in one sense because it's, all, it's just serving God and saying, we're, gonna, we're honoring you. We, we want to spend time with you. And that, again, that holy convocation where they're to gather together and it's a special day gathering together. And this is something that's so wonderful to see that we have all this gathering together of God's people and God still wants to see us do that. In Hebrews we're told, forsake not the assembling of ourselves and so much more as we see the day approaching. And it's really amazing to me how many times I hear people that are supposedly Christians saying, well, I don't need to be around the church. I don't need to be around other Christians. And you know, the sad thing is, in one sense they're right. They don't have to. But if they want to grow thoroughly and grow completely, they better be around other Christians. They need to be edified. Yeah, they need to be They around. need to be taught. We need this time to be with each other and learn and have God's presence come in a, in a special way that doesn't just happen when you're doing things by yourself. Uh, and all of us know what it's like. We, we worship God, we pray, we sing. But there's this difference when we come together in, in a group and the Spirit comes there because God says, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of you. Now, He is in our bodies and He is with us all the time, but there's this special sense that when we come together as, as the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, there's a special presence of God that comes it's, with that. It's like, to me, any kind of food, it's always better when somebody else makes it. Like, I don't eat that much meat, but if somebody else makes meat, I'll eat it. Because for some reason, it just tastes better. Anything tastes, actually, anything tastes better when you are sharing it with others. Yeah. Whether you cooked it or somebody else cooked it, that fellowship of it makes it seem, seem in some way a sweeter thing because it is the joy of sharing. And that's why so much happens when we gather together in fellowship. That's, that's why, why when I families... Don't cook, I don't cook that good. I'd rather eat somebody else's cooking. <laughs> but it's always hard to cook just for yourself anyway. Even if you like cooking, mm. it's really kind of difficult to cook just for yourself. At least I have found that to be yeah, true. It's very true. I can cook for any group of people and everything with no problem. When it, but when it comes to do something for myself, and yeah. then if you want to make a good meal, you don't want to just make a big meal for yourself because that's all this time. Then you eat on it for four or five days and you're sick of it. But there's just there's not that fellowship, and this is why the breaking of bread is always in every civilization, every culture, a big deal. To meet with each other and to serve a meal is a just an honor. I mean, the, the person receiving it should feel honored. You feel, you feel honored giving it to them. You know, there's a great honor in it, and that's one of the reasons that God really encourages the church to come together and fellowship. And a lot of times it means fellowshipping around food. That's what I was surprised. It's, I mean, like when we had the potlucks, I think that is so neat, and more people need to come, and they don't know what they're missing. Mm -hmm. It is good food. Mm -hmm. But, but it's really funny because I've been around so many different denominations. Every denomination says that you can't have one of their meetings without, you know, you know you'll hear it from the Baptist. You can't be a Baptist without having food, food being served. And you'll hear it from the Assembly of God. So be a good, you know, Assembly of God, you've got to have you know, food being served. And you hear it from Presbyterians, Lutherans. They all say the same thing, that there's got, you know, you've got to have food to have a really good fellowship time. And 
and to be a good whatever, put your denomination in there. But that all goes down to the idea of the sharing of food and the breaking of bread together is an intimate thing that brings people together. Mm -hmm. the, the sharing of it, the cooking of it, the preparing of it, the, the, the love that's given as you present it to somebody. Well, especially for this little town, I would think it's like Little House on the Prairie. They're big, but they're big cookout after church, you know. Mm -hmm. I thought, all right, could do that. Well, it used to be the way everything was done in all towns, yeah. you know. When you went to church in the older days, and even in the 1800s and 1700s, when you went to church, it was an all-day event. For one thing, it took you an hour to get there, so when you got there, you didn't just go back home. Uh, because, because unless you lived right in the town or you know within you know, within a mile of the church, you know you were riding in from your ranch, you know four miles, uh, five six miles out, you know, and, and you on riding a horse that wasn't just uh, a car. Yeah, you know, get there and get there in three or four minutes. It was a, it was an event, mm -hmm. and then you you stayed all morning listening to messages and fellowship, and then you had a break for lunch, and you would. And everybody bring out their picnic lunches and usually share share their share their lunch and everything. Then you'd go back into church at around two or three o'clock and you'd go for another hour or two and then you'd go home. You know. So like if you had the church, how many people would if we all gathered just say down towards Grasshopper, you know, walk four miles? I bet you it would be hard. But you couldn't drive me a walk. Yeah. 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 And that's exactly what it would be like, you know, back or back right in the or day. Or so but this is that idea that God has. He says, you're Pentecost. It's the beginning. It's beginnings. It's the new beginnings of things. It's, so one of the things that I wrote a while back ago, just to help remember this, is Jesus died on Passover, was buried on first fruits, resurrected on, uh, uh, was buried on unleavened bread, resurrected on first fruits, and the church was born on Pentecost where the Holy Spirit was given. That's the four spring feasts that have already been fulfilled in, in, their, in their, what they symbolized, all right? Now, it's sad that the Jews don't fully understand what these feasts represent. They look back at the historical side of things, okay? Passover, we were delivered from slavery. You know, unleavened bread, we ate, we ate unleavened bread when we left slavery. Uh, first fruit was when started when they got their first fruits when they went into the promised land and then the Pentecost is one that they're still waiting for because it's the the beginning of the kingdom for them okay so this is where you're at with these feasts all right verse 22 and when you reap the land the harvest of your land you shall not make clean riddance of the corners of your field when you reap, neither shall you gather any gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord. It's kind of a strange thing that he puts this in the middle of the feast. This little statement. This isn't the only place this statement is at. But this is God's caring for the poor. His way of caring for the poor was for, for the wealthy not to strip every penny and every, every bit out of their, out of their production. And he says, when you do your fields, you're going to leave the corners. And what does this do for the poor? It makes them work. It gives them food. It provides for them. But it makes them work for their food. It's not just given to them, which is what our government does. Our governments, and not just our government, governments in general, when they're caring for the poor, they just give 
to the poor and make them lazier and take away their any confidence they have in themselves because you know, and then give them a hard time if they work. Uh, God says you're to go out. You don't necessarily have to plant the field because it's not yours to plant. You don't have to weed the field or any of this stuff. But if, if you're going to eat, you're going to go out and work. And this is repeated in the New Testament. If, you, if the man shall not work, he shall not eat. Okay? And this is God's way of taking care of people. He does not want people to get lazy and indolent. He wants them to work. Even if they don't have the money to own fields or... Or any of that, he says they're to go out and take care yeah, of something. Naomi and Ruth, yeah. Where Ruth went out in the field and met Boaz, and and there, the whole thing was they had the corners where there was lots of grain, but there would be lots of people, and they had the center of the fields where they could walk behind the harvesters and pick up whatever fell out, out as they were harvesting it, and so this is God's way of providing for the poor. It, it's all over, all through the scriptures. It's, we saw it. We saw it before, twice before, and this is God's way of saying, "I'm going to take care of the poor," and we're commanded all through the scriptures to take care of truly poor people. Okay, the scriptures tell us that the church was to take care of true widows. Okay, and he actually put an age on which I don't remember off the top of my head. I think it was 50 or something. Because if they were younger than that, he said that they'll either get lazy and become gossipers because you're taking care of them, or they're gonna, or they're gonna get remarried. <laughs> and you, you know, and if it was somebody who was unmarried, they 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 were the, the be taken care of by their brothers, and uh, if they were married and widowed, they were to begin to be taken care of by their family. Widowers. Huh? What about widowers? Men were men were able to go out and get their own work. For women. Well, the women were, you got a job. <laughs> you didn't lose your job just because you lost your wife. Most women did not work outside the home in that the in this time. The men did the work, not the women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of women did work. I mean, you, you yeah. look at Proverbs 31 woman, and it says that she rose up early. She made oh. purple garments, sold, sold the garments, and, and made income. So it wasn't that the women did not necessarily work. But they were not recognized for it in, in the same way. Okay? And this was a day and age where the woman belonged to the man. Literally belonged to the man. She, she belonged to her father until she was married, and then she belonged to her husband. And so when, she, when her husband died, if she didn't have children to take care of her, then she was kind of out of luck. Because she wasn't able to own things in her own name, and she had no rights. And we've talked to, you know, in Jesus' day, a woman couldn't even testify at court because they were non-existent. And that's why it's amazing that who did Jesus show himself to first? Mary women. Mary, Mary. To the women. And you know, the, ones, the very ones that couldn't even give testimony in court are the ones he went to first. You know, and Jesus raised the, the position of women in a mighty way. Because somebody else asked me that. Well, see, Jesus wasn't really valid, even though he was the one that lied, that did the sin first, but the women were the first one to see him then. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty amazing thing, and the you know, amazing thing that God has done, and, and Christianity has changed the state of, of, of a woman and, and has really pretty much taken away the gender, gender bias, even as though it still exists to a little bit, but you know, 
what we have in the United States and most of Europe, women are pretty much equal in, in getting a job and being able to buy property. And in the rest of the world, it hasn't been Christianized. Women still are treated as property. In the, in the Muslim world, they are property. They don't even have rights. And in most of, most of uh, the Far East, they're treated pretty much as property. And so this is something that we've got to understand. The Bible, the Jews raised women high, higher up, and Christianity raised them even higher. And it's funny that we're starting to see all of what Christianity has done for the good being destroyed. They're trying to destroy marriage. They're trying to really take and destroy women as well. And they're trying to blur the genders and all this other stuff with all this transgender garbage and, and, and uh, gender operations and all of this stuff. And you know the uh, Obama administration is making a big deal that they hired the first transgender, they're calling her woman even though he's a man that dresses like a woman. How <laughs> uh, and, and saying that this is a real big deal, and it's really and it is a big deal it in one sense. Because, yeah, not but wrong. not the way they're looking at it. Yeah. They're looking at it as a positive, and God's saying, "No, it's not. It's not positive. We're violating all of His rules." The the government is saying that that homosexuality is equivalent to regular regular heterosexual individuals and that they should be married and and forcing us into some big decisions as we look look as where are we going with this how far are we going to let sin go before we give a response back to it and the problem is our our, our education system has taught people that all this stuff is good that all of the stuff that's going on is good, and we've got too many people accepting it. Well, especially the people that are running this government, they're accepting. They're accepting it, but but believe me, most of the people that have got a college education have no problem with any of the stuff that's going on. That's true too. Uh, when I work with a, an older lady that doesn't like that mm -hmm. stuff. But she's out of step with the rest of the education system. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why we're, we're, we're one. <laughs> but this is where we see things going on that are being critical. When I went to school in the eight, in, uh, 80s and, and early 90s for my second degree, this is all the stuff that I saw. This is what was being taught in school. But I was coming in as a 30-something person and saying, no, I don't buy this, and they couldn't, they couldn't make me change my way of thinking. And... But we're sending our kids, barely knowing what they believe, into these lion pits with professors that are going to teach them all this liberal garbage, and then they come out believing it. That yeah. movie that we saw, what was that one about when the guy... God's Not Dead. Yeah, that one there where he wants his professor didn't believe in it. And that's not an uncommon event in schools. I mean, it's a little bit, it was a little bit exaggerated for, for poetic license, but it's not far-fetched. Well, not far, yeah. It's not far, far removed from what actually goes on. And there are professors that will purposely try to tear apart Christians. And they hate it when the Christian comes in and is an older student, you know, that's gone through a lot of life. And knows. And kind of knows how to defend themselves and is not going to be bullied by, by a, you know, by a professor just bullying them. But when they get these guys that are... 18, 19, 20, 21 really yeah, that don't have all the answers that they need to have and, and maybe never even heard that somebody goes against this stuff. 
This is why in, in churches we need to do a better job teaching kids and young people what they believe and why it is valid. Why do we believe in uh, creationism rather than evolution? Why do we believe that, that uh, marriage is one man and one woman and not the whatever the family decides it to, you know, whatever the government decides? Because family is being redefined a lot lately. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say, well, I'm not close to my family, but I've, I've created my own family. Oh, Here's yeah. my family, you know, and they're, they're not even talking about, you know, even sexual relations with the family. It's just, here's my family, my, 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 three, you know, my three best friends, you know, whether they're male or female, it doesn't matter, they're my, they're my family. Yeah. You know, and we've been redefining family for a long time. And yes, some families aren't That's worth being calling your family. Some families aren't, yeah, you better have But they're still your family. You know, they're still your family. You may feel more comfortably with the family of God, and that's not a bad deal at all because they, we are all brothers and sisters as a family of God, but that's because we're adopted into this family. But that doesn't mean we can just say, I'm not, that's not my family. I can't just rule out, the, you know, say, well, I don't like any of them. They're not my family. No, they're still your family. You know, you may not have anything to do with them. You may not want to be around them. You may not like them. But they're still family. And you can't go and just make up your own family and say, this is a family. Uh, and because we've been doing this for a long time. And or now they adopted a family. Yeah. And well, adopted, if you're actually adopted, that's no, one no, thing. No, no. But they just say that word, like, yeah. I adopted, like, yeah. and you say. And this is where they're getting away from, God says, this is family. That, usually, if you've got a family that is dysfunctional, as we call them, it's because they're not following God's rules in the first place. Yeah. Uh, you've got a husband who probably doesn't love his wife and the wife that doesn't love their husband and never did because they didn't, they didn't really make their decision based on love. And they're just tolerating each other because they, for some reason, don't believe in getting divorced. And then, and then you've got the father who goes out and he's a workaholic and he's never home. And I was guilty of that in the early part of my marriage where I was never at home. I came to bed, I fell into bed about 2, 3 o'clock in the morning most of the time and got back up to go back to work again by, by 7. You know, see the kids and it's like, who is this guy, you know? Uh, and that had repercussions to my family, even to this day has repercussions to my family of years of doing that. And can we do things wrong? Can we really mess up our families? Oh yes, we can mess up our families. And that doesn't even get into drugs and alcohol and the sinful lifestyle of a lot of people that really mess up their families. You know, we, we deal around here with so many families that have been really messed up. You know, divorce, uh, incest, rape of the kids, you know, sold, you know, used in prostitution, all the things that we're dealing with because of the drug culture and everything in a lot of the families that we deal with. And then we wonder why these poor kids are all messed up. Because they don't know what it means to have a family. They don't even know what love is in most, in most cases. And yet, we're going to try to show them what love is. And Satan is doing this on purpose. He's trying to destroy the family because it is a picture of God's family. Okay? And, and it's really sad when you tell somebody you know, God wants to be your father and they've had a bad father that beat them or, or sexually assaulted them or was never around. Attempted murder. Huh? Attempted murder them. Well, we, or tried to kill you or, or just beat you. And you tell somebody that God wants to be your father to somebody like that and, you know, they're going, 
yeah, right. I don't, I don't, I don't want a father. I don't need a father. Because, they're, the guy, because Satan has done such a good job destroying the picture of a father. The, the marriage is a picture of Jesus and his bride. And so Satan is out to destroy marriages because the, if you can destroy the picture of the husband and wife, you destroy the picture of Jesus with his bride, the church. And the caring that, the, the, that Jesus has for his bride, that he, that he gives his life for his bride, he sacrifices everything so that, so that he can present his bride unblemished. And God tells the, the, the husband, this is what you are supposed to be to your wife. And then you get these guys who think that, you know, I, I, am, I am man, hear me roar, I'm in charge, you know, you're going to follow me because it's what the Bible says, you're to be submitted. Well, if he does his job, there's no woman in the world who's not going to want to be submitted to him. If he loves her and he's caring for her and he's protecting her and doing everything for her good, she's not going to have any trouble submitting to that kind of a man. If he's up there saying, I'm boss, <laughs> you know, every one of us knows what happens if somebody tries to, to make us do something. There's not a one of us that doesn't bristle at it. Now, we may bend or may not, depending on how strong-willed we are, how, how compliant we are. But even the most compliant person bristles at being told, you must do something. Mm -hmm. no, they, may, they may bend easily to, the, to that person's will, but they're still irritated about it. And, you know, this is Satan's attack. He's attacking everything that God says is good. He's attacking all that God says is a sin and changing it and saying, well, they're just a bunch of sicknesses. Okay? And, you know, you're, you're no longer a drunk, which is a sin. You are a drunk. You have a, you're alcoholic. You have a disease of alcoholism. You're no longer a thief, you're a kleptomaniac. You have a problem not taking things that don't belong to you. And we need to mentally help you get over this. Now it's a sin and you're committing a sin and you need to be <laughs> treated as a sin. But all, and even with the sexual sins now, you're, 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 a sec, you're, you're addicted to sex. You have, a, you have a disease. You can't help yourself. And it's so sad that Satan is getting these victories and people are buying into it. And why does Satan want to make them all sicknesses? Because if they're, not, if they're sins, you're accountable for them. If they're a sickness, you're not accountable for, for like the committing them. They're making excuses. They're saying that it's a, that it's a sickness. Because who can get mad at you? If it's a sickness, it's like getting mad at somebody and saying they did something wrong because they got a cold, they got the flu. You know, and this is why they're trying, Satan is working hard to get all these sins considered sickness. And then from sickness will become the idea of acceptance. And this is what homosexuality went through in our, in our world. Homosexuality went from being a sin to a sickness. And for years it was a sickness. If you had it, you were sick. You know, and you needed treatment. To today where... It's just a choice, a lifestyle that you're choosing or has been forced on you or you were born into as they're now trying to, to say because it's now, it's now not a sickness, it's not a sin, it's something that you were born as. And man, if God just let you be born as that, who is anybody to criticize what you were born as? And, you know, and this is all getting, God says one thing and we have the world telling us another thing. And this is why it's so critical for us to get a Bible-centered world view so that when we come across any of these things the world's throwing at us, 
We say, this is what God says about it. Mm -hmm. It's going to put us out of step with the world. It'll eventually make us an enemy of the world as we say, no, it's a sin. We're not accepting it. It's a sin. And we need to have this place where we are following God's word and saying, we are going to follow his word no matter what. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. God's word is what we're going to stand on. And if we do that as a church, we're going to, we're going to fall out of line with the world as the world gets closer and closer to the end times and, and things get more like the days of Noah and everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes, then people will start coming against us. Mm-hmm. And they will come against us hard. And we need to be ready for this because the Christian church is going to be under attack before we and get I'm resurrected. Sure and it will it's going to be good in one sense yeah. because it's going to it's going to separate the weed and the and the and the tares. chaff or the yeah. weed and the tares because those who aren't truly christian when the when the heat gets turned up are going to disappear and say ah not for me yeah. i can i can go worship god on my own i don't need this uh this group of nuts who are keep, are getting in trouble all the time with other people but this is where we're going to be and we're coming on this time and if we are truly in the end times as i believe we are it's going to get harder and harder on the church. And it may be a point when we cannot meet in this building because it's gotten so hard. We'll be meeting in homes. We'll be doing it secretly like the, like the Christians in the Iron Curtain did and then behind the Bamboo Curtain because things are so bad. Russia. The Soviet Union and Russia and Cuba and, and many other places where they have to meet in secret. But we need to be prepared. We need to prepare our hearts. Are we going to stand on God's word or are we going to be surrendering whatever it is that he wants us to, they want us to surrender to? And it's Christian church has been full of history of people who have rejected God when the chips are down and those who have accepted God when the chips are down. Let's go ahead and close in prayer and we'll end at the spring breaks on verse 26. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the, the just looking at your feast. We are getting ready to look at the fall feast next week and, and the fulfillment of, the, of those that is to come. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.